Hello, welcome to the Classical Music Pod. In today's dizzying spectacle of an episode, drama in the concert hall as unionised musicians seize the means of sound production, glimmers of hope as multiple musical institutions have their own Lazarus moment, I peer into the gilded musical cages of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, and we admit our generational ignorance in a brief but illuminating encounter with Gen Z. Sam, we couldn't do a classical music news quiz without mentioning the plight and subsequent resurrection of the BBC singers. I like the Easter topical. That's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Thank you. For listeners who aren't up to date, here's the story in brief. The BBC announced the Chamber Choir's closure earlier this month as part of a wider push to cut costs. This caused international uproar with hundreds of musicians and various celebrity and political figures weighing in to protest the decision. Mm. Last week, a reprieve was granted after a number of unnamed organisations came forward to offer an alternative funding model, which sounds a little shady, but there we go. Yeah, we're going to have a sort of Roman Abramovich-style sponsor for the BBC Singers. <laughs> yeah. They're going to say Gazprom is great at the end of yeah. each, uh, <laughs> each piece. <laughs> but Sam, the BBC Singers is not the only publicly funded musical institution to be brought back from the brink of extinction. Which European orchestra has also survived a funding cut this week? Oh, I don't know. I assumed that they weren't cutting orchestras in Europe because everyone always says that they are yeah. you know, great bastions of art support. Well, this is what I thought, but apparently plans by the Austrian national broadcaster ORF or... to scrap the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, which oh. you know, chief conductor Marin Olsop is a big name. Apparently plans were ruled off limits by the federal government, so that's not going ahead anymore. Meanwhile, the Scottish government has just announced an extra 1.5 million of funding to save various children's orchestras that were also at risk of closure in underfunded or or um, underserved areas of that country. So mm. these, I mean, this is great. Uh, those do sound like quite small numbers in the scheme of government spending. You know, you, mm. the number I've seen floating around, although I'm not sure quite of the provenance of it was £5 million for the operating costs of BBC Singers, or say £1.5 million more going into supporting school music in Scotland here. Mm. Uh, another number I saw banding around this week was £895 million, which was spent on one month of Eat Out to Help Out. Yeah. And you could fund, if those numbers are correct, you could fund almost the entire 90-year history of yeah. the BBC Singers. <laughs> off one month of Eat Out to help out. And, of course, whatever, weighing one thing against another, it's just they're still quite small numbers in mm. no, no, what we're talking about. My 
big takeaway from this story is that although they're ostensibly all good news stories, right? Mm. Things being saved. This is the sort of sad parallel at the root of each of them. I, as belts tighten, the precarity of classical music institutions mm. seems to be especially, whether they're grassroots organisations or, you know, the most prestigious, well-established ensembles, becomes painfully visible, right? Yes, and if you consider the history that those institutions have endured, world wars, financial crashes, uh, whatever, it just feels like there's a state of atrophy that's been gradually mm. cutting away at it rather than this particular moment being more mm. dramatic, more of a crisis than any previous crisis. Mm. For those looking to console themselves, look no further than Denmark, where a new centrist party, which fought Denmark's general election last year, arguing for an increase in culture budget, has, in its role in the coalition, last week pushed through an increase of a billion Danish kroner, I think. So it's not all bad. Lots of concert hall drama this month, Sam. Why did both the national orchestras of Lyon and Lille get booed by audience members? Well, I think this is union members standing up to say musical life is hard at the moment and audiences booing at them and mm -hmm. being like, just get on with the music, just shut up and yes, dribble. Kind exactly, of stuff. yes. So, so listeners may have been following... The mayhem in France as President Macron tries to push through pension reform with plans to postpone the state retirement age by two years, I think from 62 to 64, which is still yeah, yeah, stunningly yeah. low compared to the rest of I'm going to be about 95 by the time yeah. I retire, aren't I? Yeah. yeah, so speeches were given by orchestra members, possibly orchestra union representatives, yeah. before performances, and then uh, there were boos and jeers. Being, yeah, the message essentially being shut up and get on with it. Your pal... Ben Glassberg was conducting one of these performances. I think he's associate conductor or has some position with the National Orchestra of Lyon. And he tweeted, uh, are we musicians just a product to be sold or are we not also human beings who devote our lives to something bigger than us individually? That our orchestra was able to still turn out sensational performance of Wagner songs moved me almost to tears. Mm. Interesting sentiment. Yeah, and recognising that People are performing for you. Mm. It's like common courtesy in a restaurant or something, just like saying thank you to a waiter as they mm -hmm. put something down. Like there are human beings on stage, they're expressing to you something about their life, which is probably not dissimilar to the other people who are in the auditorium. That's what yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, it's, like, it's confusing, isn't it? Um, this is an issue that, whatever, uh, sounds like audiences need to just check in with themselves. Sam, if you were trying to subdue a crowd of rowdy teenagers, what piece of music would you use? Uh, you know when people sometimes play music out their phones on the bus? Yes. Whatever. <laughs> I went through a phase of whenever I was sat next to someone who I didn't feel too intimidated by and they were doing that, I would play Stravinsky Symphonies of Winds out of my phone as well, <laughs> which is one of the most obnoxious openings to a piece. Of, like, you can't miss it. It's lots of high, bright, E-flat clarinet. <laughs> Uh, until we all just decided that we should stop playing music out of our phones. See, that's what is... Okay, so this month a Swansea man managed to successfully wield Mars from Holst's <laughs> Planet Suite in a fracas with his own neighbours. Uh, the man was being driven mad by noisy students next door, right, playing music 24 mm. hours a day. So he put up speakers against the wall 
went away for a weekend and left Mars on repeat. (laughs) (laughs) And the students apparently have learned their lesson and since been much quieter, which I find amazing and frankly quite hard to believe that it worked. Yeah, but lots of dance music in four, Mars in five. Like, it would be a real interesting, like, bit of... Um, you couldn't, you'd really struggle to even mix something that would hit the right tempo. Sounds like something Jacob Collier would try and do. Yeah. You only put your right foot down every six and a half bars. God. (laughs) In a similar vein, (laughs) how has has classical music been harnessed in LA this month? Is it one of these places where they sort of play outside McDonald's to make people go home? Yeah. Or something? The Met Transportation Authority has begun playing classical hits through subway speakers to drive down antisocial behaviour and increase ridership. Ridership. <laughs> ridership. Uh, it's part of a response to a recent spike in violent crime. Something You're right, something similar has been happening in London McDonald's restaurants and uh. on the underground for years and years, right? Um, with proven success, by the way, the, a, a TFL initiative launched in 2007 apparently cut robberies by 33% within 18 months, which is an impressive stat. Yeah, I can't think of anything that has been so dramatically effective. Any guesses what Metaverse first took place on March the 17th, Sam? Ooh, did Mark Zuckerberg acknowledge that Bitcoin's a myth? <laughs> no, I like it though. The Teatro Real in Spain mm, yeah. became the world's first opera house to present a live opera in the Metaverse with its production ah. of Shostakovich's The Nose. According to the theatre's press release, using an avatar... Virtual opera goers can watch the production in the Royal Meta Theatre, a 3D replica of the Teatro Real, located in Utopion. Man, I... I <laughs> am I old? Or is this just rubbish? <laughs> it feels <laughs> rubbish. It feels so rubbish. <laughs> so this apparently forms part of the Teatro Real's strategy to reach new audiences, especially Gen Z. Now, Sam, being millennials and without any stats for the Gen Z attendance of this meta-production, we've very little ammo with which to be scathing about the venture. So I decided to approach our resident Gen Zer Maddie to ask her opinion. Here's what she had to say. I don't think I'd still, just because it was online, want to watch opera, if that's what they're trying to get at. I just think opera's very niche, and unless I was at a conservatoire or doing some form of study in music, I would never think, you know, oh, I want to see the opera, even if it was online. For me, that doesn't make any difference. But I think it's nice for disadvantaged Gen Zs who would not necessarily be able to afford or experience the sort of live in the theatre opera experience because... In this day and age, especially if you're a Gen Z, even if you're struggling to put food on the table, you'll still have an iPhone in your back pocket. You can quote me on that. In summary, if the whole gist is the way to get Gen Zs involved is to do it online, I think that is sort of relatively patronising to this generation because I don't think it's as simple as that, but maybe I'm simplifying it. Maybe I completely misunderstood the article. But, yeah. Bye. Thanks for a very thoughtful message from Maddie there. Uh, She's a wise owl. Uh, I think, 
yeah, she's absolutely right that by putting things online, it's just sort of gimmickry to me. Mm-hmm. It takes away all the transferably fun bits of going to an opera. So, like, if you've enjoyed going to a West End show or a Shakespeare play or a ballet or whatever it is, so much of the fun is meeting up with your friends or family, having a bite mm-hmm. and a drink and going into a big, exciting building that's got posters mm-hmm. and lights and all this stuff. And then you go away and you talk about it afterwards. Yeah. Uh, all those extra bits have been stripped away. So actually all you're getting is the art form and you're probably getting it by yourself on a phone or a screen. Mm. And that's quite bleak to me. Yes, indeed. Now, hang on a minute, Sam. Before we become unbearably smug about how rubbish this idea was, we should point out, firstly, that experimentation by its nature implies the right to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should also point out the other genuinely interesting stuff that the Teatro Real is doing to get young people excited about opera. Since 2021, they've run what are called youth previews, which include a discount price to operas plus an invitation to an after opera, so-called after opera, with a DJ and booze and apparently makeup stands that give guests the chance to put on costume and evoke some of the opera's characters. Yeah, get like a little Zarastro look for your way home. Yeah, nice. So that, you know, that's much more about the whole being in the building, hanging out with your friends, the whole experience that you just talked about. And this, plus an earlier youth discount initiative, has reduced the average age of the opera audience at the Teatro Real from 59 to 54 over the last decade. So, you know, they're doing Mm. some good stuff. Yeah. And we shouldn't be glib about metaverse Hey, it's worth a go. And they might have got some money for it and shuffled mm-hmm. it around into a cool makeup stand. Red. That's it for news today. So, apropos of absolutely nothing, Play Us Out is a Macedonian street musician playing Bizet on booze bottles. I've been rustling through the mailbag this week, Sam. Has the postman brought us anything of note? A particularly good question this week from one of our listeners. Dr Candice Mintz has asked, Are there examples of film music which use the structures we associate with concert music? What a fabulous question. Do classical structures pop up in film music? Give me but the twinkling of an eye and I'll have some waffle for Mintz. Analysis. Sense and sensibility. Ah, yes, the Channel 5 documentary about rhinoplasty gone wrong. Alas, you're off the trail there, Timbo. I'd like to refer you to Emma Thompson's 1995 adaptation of Jane Austen's 1811 novel. Ah, yes, it's right out of the top drawer of and titles. Pride and Prejudice. War and Peace. Starsky and Hutch. Cagney and Lacey. Fast and Furious. Tod und Verklaren. What an afternoon of listening that would be. The Sense screenplay won Emma Thompson her second Oscar. In 1993, she had won the Best Actress statuette for Howard's End, and in 95, she became the first person to win for acting and writing. What a double whammy. And probably her highest accolades, aside from being the daughter of the Magic Roundabout's narrator, Eric Thompson. I hope this doesn't take too long, said Dougal. I've got things to do. 
The S&S film was directed by Ang Lee before he broke back or even hulked and starred a glitterati of up-and-coming British acting talent. Hugh Grant was cast to bumble as Edward. With you... You've not heard? Who eventually gets together with Thompson's Eleanor. Alan Rickman spends the film speaking through his lured teeth as Colonel Brandon, the shy ex-military suitor to a pre-Titanic Kate Winslet, who plays Marianne. I really love you, Marianne. Not that Marianne. But before she comes round to the merits of Brandon, Marianne spends some time lusting after the handsome, horse-riding John Willoughby, no relation of Holly, played by Emma Thompson's real-life husband, young Greg Wise, one of the worst Strictly contestants of all time. The film went down well, aside from Grant's casting, which was criticised by the Jane Austen Society of North America, Jasna, whose representatives said that he was just too handsome for the part. One of the few complaints we haven't received, sir. Come on, Jasna. Composer Patrick Doyle, who had previously worked with his friend Emma Thompson on the films Henry V, Much Ado About Nothing and Dead Again, was hired to produce the music for Sense and Sensibility. Mr Doyle received his first Academy Award nomination for his score. Go on, my son. And, with Miss Mincer's question in mind, does Patrick use any traditional musical structures in his film score? Let's zoom in on a sequence called My Father's Favourite, which involves Eleanor, Thompson, and Edward, Grant, doing some quiet courting whilst Marianne, Winslet, plays the tune identified as their deceased father's favourite at the piano, providing the underscore. Patrick Doyle utilises an enclosed musical structure called a rounded binary for this section. That's not spherical robot speak. Rounded binary. No, but it works a bit like a musical sandwich. An opening A section of bread, a tasty B section in the middle as filling, before a return to some sort of direct or indirect repetition of that bready A section. A, B, A. One beyond short of Eurovision immortality. Here's the opening musical theme. The bready A section. During which we see Edward moving nervously towards Eleanor for a conversation. Little shots of him looking furtive line up with the syncopation. Four bar phrases balance, harmonically opening and closing like Thompson's fluttering eyelids. The filling B section. This underscores the conversation between Edward and Eleanor. Ostensibly, it's not about very much, but as with all Austin flirtation, it's bubbling with subtext. The minor mode, the restricted melodic range, and the asymmetrical phrases leak those underlying messages out. We can hear the coquetry, it's just not in the words. They resolve to go for a walk to see a treehouse. The Bready A section returns, but it's been expanded into a pocket-sized concerto with accompaniment by orchestra. We've had the sandwich. A. Walking near each other indoors. B. Flirty chat. Return of A. Walking near each other, but the horizons are broadened and they're outside, hence the orchestra. But is there any broader purpose for using this structure? I think there are a couple, Timbo. Conjecture time? Let's conject. Rounded binary, A-B-A, is a classical form. Classical with a big C rather than a small C. It's era-appropriate. Era-appropriate feels like solid conjecture. 
Okay, something spongier next. Well, yes. Structure creates, but it also confines. Are treehouses just cages we build for ourselves? Ang Lee, being the beautiful art house director he is, frames all the shots of women in this sequence through door frames and windows. It makes them look like paintings, but it also reminds us of the restrictions that they're under. The limitations on the women's lives are made audible in the music. The Alberti bass we hear, poor 18th century composer Domenico Alberti, whose life's work is reduced to a four-note pattern. The Alberti bass is a little arpeggiaic cage. Once it's up and running, we have an expectation. To change it, to defy, is now a decision. Just as for Eleanor and Edward, for all that their interactions are stilted and awkward, it is a structure, a framework. He and she will flirt, marry, and fulfil society's expectations of them. Spongy conjecture. The musical ABA cage is representative of the gilded bars of the late 18th century for women in the upper middle classes. Nice one, Doyle. Musical structure as a representation of a highly stratified and formalised society. But there's something else about this film that's got my musical structure antenna up, Timber. Mm, Pray do tell. I think that there's a case that this whole film is in a kind of sonata form. As in, the predominant musical form of late 18th and 19th century music? Exactly that, the one we explained in an earlier episode about Rebecca Clark's viola sonata. I remember some Nick Clegg references. Yes, Facebook's Teflon face did come up. A slow introduction, first subject and second subject, a closing theme, a development of those themes, and a recapitulation of those themes in a tonic key. Slow intro. Death and disinheritance of Eleanor and Marianne. First theme. Eleanor and Edward get flirty. Second theme. Marianne and not Holly Willoughby turns up and looks like hot stuff. Closing theme. Shy Alan Rickman's Brandon arrives. Development. All the lads go to London, the ladies follow. Recap. Marianne and no longer shy Brandon get together, and Eleanor and Edward get together. Closing theme. Brandon and Marianne get married. It kind of works. It kind of does, yeah. Sorry if there are any spoilers in there for people. The novel's only been out for 112 years. But does this sonata form in the narrative structure get mirrored in the musical one? No. And I'm not sure why. There's not loads of music in the whole first third of the movie at all. And it only starts to build in importance as the film nears the narrative recapitulation. There's a very notable absence of scoring, I noticed, when Greg Wise's not Holly Willoughby appears out of the mist on horseback like some sort of Mills and Boone fever dream. He gets no underscore. And compare that to the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice scene. Mr. Darcy? Yes, the Sense and Sensibility score is telling us the truth that Greg Wise isn't the man for Kate Winslet. The underscore doesn't lie. She's meant to be with Alan Rickman's Brandon, whose character is given musical authority when it transpires later that he can play the piano. In Pride and Prejudice, the underscore is telling us Colin Firth is the real nipple-dripping deal. In Sense and Sensibility, the underscore tells us Greg Wise is a shallow set of handsome sideburns. Quick aside, has any actor been better underscored over their career than Alan Rickman? Die Hard? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Snape in Harry Potter, even the Love Actually soundtrack. Answers on a postcard, please. Take out your wand. 
Sense and Sensibility is a weird and rare instance where a musical structure appears in the narrative, and therefore presents an opportunity for a film-long sonata form underscore. But instead, Patrick Doyle zooms in and uses smaller scale structures like rounded binaries to add layers of characterization. And in response to our thoughtful correspondent, I think it's quite rare for musical forms to occur in film because the score must always complement the image on screen. If a piece of film music stands alone as a musical structure, how successful can we say it is in contributing to the total artwork? If it can stand alone, has its own self-defining structure, how closely can it be linked to the images on screen? That is, unless Emma Thompson has been at the script and carved a musical structure into it. Composer fact foil, Patrick Doyle. Born in Uddingston, South Lanarkshire, Scotland. Age 12, he started taking piano lessons at school, making swift progress until at 18, he auditioned and was accepted to the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. Doyle started out as an actor in the late 1970s. He featured in the Oscar-winning Chariots of Fire in 1981, playing Jimmy. He joined Kenneth Branagh's Renaissance Theatre Company in 1987 as composer and musical director. His big break was Henry V. He has written scores for over 60 feature films. He managed to write the entire score for the animated fantasy Quest for Camelot in hospital whilst undergoing treatment for leukaemia and eventually he made a full recovery. The song cycle The Thistle and the Rose was commissioned by Prince Charles in honour of the Queen Mother's 90th birthday, produced by George Martin and premiered at Buckingham Palace in 1990. Doyle has been commissioned to compose the Coronation March, which will be performed live as part of the coronation of King Charles. He has said of film music, It should sound like good music. It should always have a structure to it. It should be able to, away from the picture, conjure up the same sort of feelings and images that it was to on screen. Hey Sam, I've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast. What is a coffee donation page, Tim? It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a coffee, if you'd like to buy us a tasty Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with an interview with a renowned Icelandic composer, not giving anything else away. One of the dears. We should say a big thank you to the work of Robin Stilwell, who has written widely on film and uh, who's thinking I was drawing on definitely for our sense and sensibility piece a bit like I was you know I was the Emma Thompson to mm. there, Jane Austen yes uh, there's also some stuff in there by Matthew Head who really didn't enjoy my writing style when he taught me a little bit at university uh, I hope that he if he encounters this enjoys it more than my ill-fated article on women pianists in the 18th century entitled pianist envy <laughs> which he did not find amusing <laughs> 
it's stupid. And finally, a big thanks to our Gen Z representative, Maddie, for her thoughtful, uh, illuminating comments. Uh, we'll be probably back in touch with Maddie before long to get more Gen Z thoughts. 